Welcome to you all to third Friday seminar of the term, an Oxford event at the Middle East Centre where we're hosting two wonderful scholars from across the Atlantic on the theme of dictatorship. Those of you who've been attending regularly will be familiar with the series that we've started this term on the basis of Ala Aswani's book, The Dictatorship Syndrome. And I'd like to welcome at this point our guests from across the Atlantic, Danish Faruqi and Dalia Fahmi. Welcome to you both, just so that everyone can see you. Although uh, you'll have to unmute in order for people to be able to see you, I think. My name is Usama Al-Azami. I am a departmental lecturer at Oxford. I am the departmental lecturer in contemporary Islamic studies. And it gives me great pleasure to welcome Dalia Fahmi and Danish Faruqi to talk about illiberal liberals and the future of dictatorship in Egypt. This, in a sense, serves as a counterpoint to the perspective presented by uh, Ala al-Aswani a couple of weeks ago, based on his book, The Dictatorship Syndrome. Both uh, Dalia Fahmi and Danish Faruqi are the authors of an edited volume with a title that is quite similar to this week's presentation. The title is Egypt and the Contradictions of Liberalism, Illiberal Intelligentsia and the Future of Egyptian Democracy. And in a sense, these two scholars have pointed out certain challenges that liberalism faces in Egypt in particular that renders it an illiberal form of liberalism. So I want to briefly uh, introduce our two speakers and then I'll quickly hand over to them. They'll have a short period, about 10 minutes, to give a presentation and I think they'll take a slightly different tack on their presentations as we will see shortly. And we welcome participants to ask questions immediately. We will pick up on the question potentially midstream. For that, we have our colleague, Professor Walter Armbrust, who will be waiting in the wings to read to us the questions that are coming in that can then be addressed by Professor Dalia Fahmi and Danish Faruqi. So let me very briefly introduce them both. And because we have just one hour and we want to make this short and sweet, I'm going to give brief introductions. Both of these scholars are very accomplished and I could go on for a while. Dalia Fahmi is Associate Professor of Political Science at Long Island University, where she teaches courses on U.S. foreign policy, world politics, international relations, military and defense policy, and much else besides, much of it focused on the Middle East. And she is a senior fellow also at the Center for Global Policy in Washington, D.C. As I've mentioned already, she is the co-editor of a volume entitled Egypt and the Contradictions of Liberalism, and the other co-editor is with us, Danish Faruqi. Dalia has written a number of books and other edited volumes. She's compiled a number of academic journal articles. But of course, both of these uh, scholars are quite well known to the media circuit. They very often contribute to media outlets, whether in the form of interviews or in the form of op-ed pieces. Danish Faruqi, for his part, is currently a visiting scholar at the Center for the Study of Genocide and Human Rights at Rutgers University and a doctoral candidate in history at Duke University. A scholar of the Middle East and Islamic history with a particular emphasis on Islamic political thought, he has spent several years in the Middle East as a researcher and a journalist. And as noted, he is also the co-editor of the work whose title informs our own title for today, namely Illiberal Liberals and the Future of Dictatorship in Egypt. Without further ado, I'd like to hand over to our speakers and I'd like to remind everyone that they are free to ask as many questions as they like, beginning immediately, and uh, Walter Armbrust will kindly curate them and pass them on to the speakers once they're finished. So I think, Dahlia, you are up first, if you'd like to go ahead, please. 
Well, thank you so much and good evening to all of you um, out across the pond and good afternoon to those here in the States. And thank you to the Oxford Middle East Center for hosting us. In this important moment where we see dictatorship and authoritarianism or authoritarian tendencies on the rise throughout the world. And for including us in this theme framed by Dr. Aswani's uh, latest book, The Dictatorship Syndrome. And of course, thank you, Dr. Azmi, for um, moderating the session with us. So the, the events that led up to the January 25th revolution and its power as a transformative moment in North Africa and the Levant demonstrate the strength of people from all walks of life, Muslim and Coptic, liberal and conservative, secular and Islamist, poor and wealthy, educated and illiterate, coming together calling for freedom, dignity, good governance and democracy. Present in this transformative moment, were both the masses and the intellectual, the, the popular elite. But as the uncertainty of post-revolution took place, this undecidedly non-democratic forces began to further consolidate power. And the elite or the intelligentsia, those that hold the most power independent of the state apparatus grew increasingly silent. This group silence and by extension their complicity with what became a repressive military regime runs counter to what we know in democratic transition theory, which begged the question of why was the elite silent? What caused them to turn on the population they stood alongside in Tahrir Square? Now this notion of complicity, I want to focus on because Dr. Aswani also focuses on it. And I want to beg the question of who's complicit here? So the impetus for us to put this book together came full circle after the aftermath of the horrific massacre of protesters in Rabah and Nahda squares in 2013, which gave rise to a narrative of a bifurcated Egyptian society in which undesirables could be or needed to be outright eliminated to cleanse Egyptian society leading to what Human Rights Watch has called the largest single day massacre of protesters in modern history. Now the role of the intelligentsia in their silence and in some regards promoting this exclusionary narrative remains the key motivating factor for us behind this project. Their complicity all gave rise to anti-democratic values undermining the democratic process they purported to uphold and the dismantling of the very civil society which years of their work was based. While Denish is going to focus on, on the ideological foundation, but particularly individuals, I'm gonna focus on the few institutional or structural dimensions, owing that philosophical foundations do give rise to these institutions. Now the book, because it's an edited volume, does go into the role of NGOs, student movements, civil society, the media, education, and other aspects. But I'm going to focus on, on the parliament. Um, and perhaps in the Q&A, we can briefly talk about other institutions such as media and the judiciary. Now, these are institutions that are meant to safeguard democracy and foster a liberal society and, and liberalism, begging the question of, do illiberal institutions foster illiberal society or vice versa? And what is the connection? Now, Dr. Aswani does touch on this, albeit coming at it in a very different way, placing the onus of complicity on a population or people and I'm going to focus on an alternative causal frame, which I will discuss later. So in looking at 
robust and strong political parties as being key tools for ensuring state political development and granting a structure to political participation, its organization, its expansion. Political parties are meant to help ensure the overall stability of a liberal democratic process. Regrettably, however, this is not the case in Egypt where weak institutions have considerably hampered democratic consolidation, in particular the Egyptian Legislative Assembly that is the bulk of my work. As the site of cultivation of laws regulating political party formation have proven complicit in outright enfeebling Egyptian political institutions rather than emboldening them. Rather than being an outlet for civilian voices, political parties in Egypt remain instead deeply circumscribed and ultimately ineffectual. Put another way, despite the key role of a multi-party system in the preservation of the liberal democratic political order, the dysfunctional nature of party politics in Egypt has instead promoted an illiberal political order enshrined and perpetuated at the systemic level. The structural illiberalism in Egyptian politics elucidates how the failure of political mobilization in Egypt to make significant gains largely grounded in the systemic failure of party politics as a mouthpiece for the political aspiration of the Egyptian masses. And unfortunately, not only does this continue today, it is worse than it was pre-revolution. Now, throughout modern history, Egypt has proven largely incapable of providing a meaningful outlet for political opposition. Since the overthrow of the monarchy in 1952 and the Free Officers Movement, the Egyptian state has ushered as a secular republic. Yet the demands on a Republican government to vest power in the government through elected representatives, the Egyptian Republic from its inception gave rise to a series of structural conditions that both undermine and circumscribe political contestation. The deficit of democracy or democratic consolidation in Egypt speaks to an equally pressing phenomenon, democratic decay. Hard-won stability can be put in jeopardy by rapid social change, institutional rigidity, and organizational complicity. And when considering the onerous constraint under which the opposition parties in Egypt operate, working against the backdrop of the pendulum swing of democratic consolidation through formerly yet wholly superficial elections and institutions, that potential for democratic decay becomes very much apparent. For these political institutions do not perform the same functions in an authoritarian context as they would under a democracy. The primary aim of political institutions under authoritarian regimes is to ensure the state-society relations can be controlled, where demands can be revealed without appearing as acts of resistance, where issues can be hammered out without undue public scrutiny, and while where resulting agreements can be addressed in a legitimate form publicized by such. Accordingly, the function of such institutions under authoritarian regimes is not the check on authority of the executive, but rather to control society at large by circumscribing formal avenues of participation. Now, post-revolution, there is this question of what is political pluralism and can it function in Egypt? Now, after the January 25th revolution, within a few days, we saw the flourishing of the beginning of political parties. And it begs the question, why was this impossible under Mubarak and what has happened today? 
So under the Mubarak regime, we saw that there was a law that prevented political party formation um, because of redundancy. And so by design, political party formation leading to contestation in, in politics was by design eliminated. And this begs the question, and we can talk about it more in the Q&A, why when we think about opposition in Egypt or opposition parties in the Middle East per se, are they Islamist in nature? Post-revolution, when the law was changed, we saw a flourishing of political parties. Within the first few days of the change of the law, the first party to be registered was, was the center party, the Wasat party. Another newly formed Egyptian Democratic Social Party founded by Dr. Hamra Hamzawi, who is a contributor to our volume, who is an academic here in the States today, formerly with the Carnegie Center, formed a party comprised of hundreds of professionals and university professors. A few days later, the Secular Weft Party hosted a symposium for all Egyptian secular parties, both old and new, to join the new established order. Very few days after that, 73 members of Egypt's oldest leftist party, Atagamma, walked out of party headquarters over contestation of what is their new party going to look like, ultimately leading to deeper discussions on party formation. But it wasn't just that moment of pluralism that existed. Within the Islamist network or the Islamist frame, we saw a flourishing of political parties where the Muslim Brotherhood no longer, for example, had a monopoly on religion and politics. The center party was formed. Two other parties were formed. And for the sake of time, I won't go into, into their detail. But I want to focus on is that here we saw the flourishing of political party formations almost instantly after the revolution with political platforms being established, with beginnings of contestation of the coming parliamentary election right after the revolution. And it begs the question of Dr. Aswani's assumption of not just who is complicit, but who was pacifying this new order. And so what happened? And for the sake of time, I'm skipping over and possibly in the Q&A, we can talk about what happened under SCAF, what happened during the rise of the Muslim Brotherhood, the Muslim Brotherhood or President Morsi's time in office, and then the fall and how today we have a deeply entrenched military dictatorship. But in diagnosing the syndrome, Dr. Aswani talks about a set of symptoms that seem to appear together and how it happened and how they happen and possibly now that we know what the symptoms are we can offer a cure and the assumption is that the dictator as an individual who controls society is not just himself controlling society but is controlling a complicit population that almost calls for this control and so society are both victims and facilitators of dictatorship and he captured this interestingly in this story at the outset of the text of the narrative between him and his father as they're standing in the wake of President Nasser's death. And he sees that the people are not accepting of the death. They're not accepting of the loss of the big man. Now we know that this idea of the big man permeates throughout Dr. Aswani's other works, right? In the Yakubian building, there is a big man in the background. In Chicago, there is a big man. But it denies people the 
idea that maybe they're mourning the defeat of pan-Arabism or the humiliation of the 1967 defeat or the coming uncertainty or the lack of clear path or a constitution that has not enshrined democratic institutions and their representation on the larger scale. There's a saying in Egypt, um, and I'll say it colloquially, if you don't have a big man, you purchase a big man because you need a big man. And this is the kind of undercurrent of the theme in, in several of his works, but also here. And so the question remains, can we look at a complicit population as both facilitators and victims of the syndrome? Are there institutional factors that enshrine and ensure this? For example, institutions that I've mentioned briefly, why are oppositions always framed in Islamist terms? Are there institutional reasons? And the reason why I challenge this framing is because asking the right questions or the wrong questions may lead us down the road of constructing solutions that might seemingly be addressing what are symptoms or indicators of the syndrome he's alluding to of dictatorship, but not of the disease of oppression and the lack of democracy. So I'll, I'll stop here because I've reached my time limit, but hopefully this is the beginning of a conversation that we can have a healthy discussion in, in the Q&A. So thank you, Osama. Thank you so much, Dalia. I've given you a very short period of time, but that was a, a wonderful, uh, insightful sort of look into the institutional challenges and the historical challenges, and in some respects, the cultural norms that have been instigated by certain historical phenomena in a place like Egypt that allow for, in a sense, the festering of this dictatorial system where political institutions, rather than being checks on power, end up serving that power and being checks on the popular will and, and all the rest of it. So thank you for, in a sense, that analytical insight into, in some respects, uh, al Aswani's ideas, but also some of the problems that potentially are to be found there. And in a sense, I think Danish Faruqi has recently in the past year or so, written a piece in foreign policy, looking quite incisively or um, presenting something of a trenchant critique of Aswani's work with respect to uh, contemporary Egypt. And I expect that we'll get a taste of that in what follows. And thank you for sort of uh, starting to ask questions already. People are already asking questions. Please note, you do have the option of anonymizing your question. And so if you don't wish your name to be mentioned in the course of us mentioning the question, please anonymize yourself. Otherwise, we'll assume that it's okay to mention your name. But without further ado, please, Danish Faruqi, the floor is yours. Okay, thank you very much. First, thanks for the Oxford Middle East Center to Professors Rogan, Al-Azami, and Armbrus for extending this invitation. And briefly, a special thanks to my collaborative partner, Professor Fahmi. Even several years after our book's completion, working hand in hand with you on this project remains one of the biggest honors of my professional journey to date. So thank you very much. With that, I proceed. So I suppose my own reading of the dictatorship syndrome was already signposted, for lack of a better term, not only because of the themes of our book more broadly, but Osama, as you mentioned, but because of my own writing since then, drawing on our book's critique to more directly address Dr. Aswani's political writings. So the good doctor has already been my interlocutor on several occasions. Having said that, for the purposes of this presentation, I thought it best to rely as much as possible on the thematic agenda of the book under consideration and only augment when necessary. 
To that end, I want to focus on what I consider the three most edifying chapters of the book, which seem to have the most global resonance in the phenomenon of dictatorship more broadly. First, the chapter concerning conspiracy theory. As Dr. Aswani puts it, quote, without exception, every dictator who has seized power in the modern era has ridden the crest of a conspiracy theory, end quote, as a basis both for subverting a dictator's accountability for his misdeeds or crimes and as a basis for outright circumventing democratic institutions. Conspiratorial thinking gives the atmosphere necessary to discard the rule of law, even if temporarily. Indeed, Dr. Aswani's writings here almost portend the rise of anti-science conspiracy theories about the COVID pandemic being propagated by Donald Trump and his supporters. The atmosphere of misinformation is especially germane to allowing the U.S. president to escape accountability for his mismanagement of the public health debacle. Similarly, from Hosni Mubarak dismissing the Kithaya protest movement as part of an international conspiracy to take down Egypt, to his administration suggesting the same of the 2011 protests that ultimately took down his administration, it's clear the conspiracy has been the bedrock of preserving Egypt's authoritarian atmosphere. Now, the next chapter under consideration concerns the spread of the fascist mindset, dovetailing with his insights on conspiracy theory. Here, Aswani speaks at length about the role of media in furthering the ambitions of the dictatorship syndrome by forcibly branding a regime's critics as traitors to the state. Relying on the example of the Nasser-era Egyptian liberal journalist Ehsan Abdel Quddus, whom our book actually addresses at some length, Aswani aptly offers the cautionary tale that even otherwise respected journalistic figures can easily be tamed by authoritarian leadership and ultimately produce propaganda in its service. Further, a co-opted media can and does serve as precisely the vehicle to disseminate conspiracy theories, thus offering a broader atmosphere of disinformation in which the dictator himself becomes the sole and ultimate arbiter of truth. These dual phenomena thus feature prominently in dictatorial regimes more broadly, and putting this broader campaign of disinformation to greater scrutiny is the necessary prerequisite, Aswani ends his book suggesting, to prevent the dictatorship syndrome more broadly. Now, this is all admirable and offers lessons well beyond the Egyptian case. Yet a more careful reading of Aswani's writings more broadly, particularly as they pertain to the putative threat of political Islam, regrettably reveal a series of double standards that render it exceedingly difficult to read the thesis of this book as altogether consistent. We see the seeds for his blind spots in his chapter on dictatorship and terrorism, a chapter that at face value seems somewhat misplaced with the rest of the book. Drawing a parallel between religious conviction and dictatorship, Aswani claims both are united by an exclusive appeal to emotion rather than to intellect. And on that basis, both presuppose a singular monopoly on the truth. From there, he attempts to offer a distinction between the politically neutral Muslim and the more insidious Islamist, the latter of whom is the bedfellow of dictatorship par excellence. 
Yet as he weaves his parallel, Aswani relies on defensive posturing not only of Islamists, but of Islamic history more broadly, that is so caricatured and alarmist that it almost becomes lost on his reader that the author only pages earlier cautioned excessively against the willful adoption of conspiratorial thinking. Chastising Islamists for indoctrinating their followers with a falsified version of history, Aswani moves on to dismiss the totality of Muslim rulers throughout history as having been, quote, simply tyrants who perpetrated injustice, plundered, and killed, end quote, relying on incidents from the Umayyad, Abbasid, and Ottoman empires to make his case. Now, to be clear, there is no historian of those empires worth their salt who would question the blood spilled by those empires or by Islamic civilization more broadly. Nor is sexual licentiousness under the Abbasids, for instance, much of a secret at this point. Yet Aswani offers these, this alarmist reading of Islamic history in effect to draw stark juxtaposition between political Islamists on the one hand and fascist dictatorship on the other hand. And in this context, Aswani's broader writings about Islamists can be better understood as part of an established pattern in which his paranoia about the threat of political Islam makes him more than comfortable suspending his own judgment about the dictatorship syndrome and the tools it employs to further its agenda. Conspiracy theory and media disinformation campaigns thus no longer appear insidious so long as they are directed against Islamists rather than dictators of a different persuasion. Indeed, as my colleague Mohammed al-Masri argues very convincingly, the Egyptian media as an institution was quite unhinged in its reliance on conspiracy during Mohammed Morsi's presidency. For instance, covering a speech Morsi gave in which he addressed his audience with the salutation, Ya ahli ya ashirati, my people, my clan, media figures of the highest persuasion in Egypt unanimously moved to accuse the president of using an Islamist dog whistle, in effect pledging his loyalty not to the people of Egypt, but only to his fellow Muslim brothers, despite any sober reading of the rest of that speech making painstakingly clear that Morsi was indeed referring to the Egyptian people more broadly. And in his capacity as a political journalist, Dr. Aswani himself has been no stranger to being a purveyor of conspiracy. Here I'll refer to an article Aswani had written following former President Morsi's mysterious death, which I also addressed in that article on foreign policy, um, to which I'll leave uh, my colleagues to direct you more specifically. Granted, Aswani does acknowledge the Sisi regime's culpability in the plain medical neglect of an incarcerated inmate, but then shifts gears to once again rely on hackneyed caricatures of the Brotherhood as a traitorous terrorist outfit, implying that the blood spilled by the Brotherhood makes it share responsibility in the former president's demise. In the process, Aswani wholly suspends his hostility to conspiracy, claiming that Morsi was never a democratically elected president in the first place, relying on the dubious charge that all elections previously won by the Brotherhood were a function of bribing poor voters with either cash or staples like oil and sugar. A charge, Aswani qualifies, with no evidence whatsoever as having been proven conclusively. Unsubstantiated innuendo of this sort then essentially means that Morsi and the Brotherhood had themselves to blame for the former president's death and incarceration. 
In the same vein that the existential threat posed by the Brotherhood, Dr. Aswani's positions suggest, necessitated Morsi's forcible removal by military coup and the rise of a hitherto unimagined dictatorial regime under Sisi and ultimately rendered the infamous massacre in Rabat Adawiya Square an unavoidable corrective. Now, to be clear, the purpose of this exercise is not to dismiss critique more broadly of the Brotherhood, of political Islam, or of Morsi's presidency. Anyone who has read our book would immediately recognize that we are no less harsh in our critiques of the Brotherhood than we are of the Egyptian liberal class to which the book is primarily directed. But in a political moment, in which dictatorship is on the rise globally, believers of freedom, democracy, and the rule of law need every tool imaginable to properly push back against dictatorship and the mechanisms undergirding it. Dr. Aswani to that end has done a great service in outlining some of those mechanisms and subjecting them to a very worthy critique. But his own paranoid blind spots about political Islam, blind spots that, as our book assiduously documents, are endemic to the project of Egyptian secular liberalism more broadly, ultimately render his prescriptions of limited staying power. Standing up to dictatorship requires going beyond endlessly and impoverishingly critiquing its premises only when politically expedient or convenient. Rather, defeating the dictatorship syndrome requires intellectual and indeed moral consistency. I hope the good doctor can take this into consideration moving forward. And with that, I think my time is up. I'll end here. Thank you very much, Danish, for a very sort of thoughtful and in many respects quite trenchant reflection on Alal Aswani's dictatorship syndrome. I think in many respects, the challenge that arises from your presentations, both of you, is, and it's articulated in the title of your book as well, and, and the title of this presentation, Illiberal Liberals. In a sense, what does it mean to be a liberal if you are illiberal at the same time? And I think this also ties in with a question that Walter will probably put to you from the audience. And I, I'm sure Walter also may have questions of his own, and I, I would welcome him to put them to you. But what does liberalism mean in a context like Egypt, where in many respects it's, it's used to limit the voice of democratic forces within the society, but at the same time it is seen as legitimately doing that on the grounds that ultimately those who are not card-carrying liberals in these societies pose a threat to wider society and are not truly democratic. Yet at the same time, these uh, figures sometimes appear to show that their own commitments to democracy have certain limits as well. And so this is, uh, this is a, a challenging sort of state of affairs in Egypt. And perhaps with that, uh, if I can take the chair's prerogative and, and begin the q and I'll put that as a question to the two of you. And feel free to answer both of you or just one of you. And then I'm sure there are plenty of questions that Walter is ready to put to you. So who would like to take this? Please feel free. I'll take a really um, <laughs> brief wide strath of how we think about liberalism as you know the basic political doctrine that's about the protecting and enhancing of the freedom of the individual. And that is the central problem and role of politics and the role of government 
in ensuring and devising a system that gives government the power necessary to protect individual liberty, but prevents those from governing, from abusing power. And so very loosely determined, that's how we define liberalism. And again, because there's so many contributors who talk about it differently, you know, the mechanisms of governance, the mechanisms of articulation could be different, referring to different um, theorists. However, the cornerstone here is the protecting and enhancing freedom and individual liberty both through institutions and looking at the kind of democratic preconditions literature that requires a liberal intelligentsia to be the safeguard of this transition or the safeguard of this movement. And so the question for us continues to be their silence, their complicity, but even in the kind of recalling of the past, to look for solutions towards the future, they are not just limited, they're actually missing the bulk of the levels of structural, political, and ideological injustice that facilitate the moment we're in today. Thank you very much. I'm going to now hand over to Walter, if that's okay. Okay, I'll, I'll start by, well, I, I confess I had had a similar question to the, the one that Sam has already put and which was the very first question that we got, which was, what do you mean by liberalism? But in, in my case, I'm just wondering why you're talking about illiberal liberalism rather than just talking about the failure of liberalism or the absence of it or the dysfunctionality of it. I'll throw that out to you, but I, have, I would like to get to questions that have been put to us by uh, members of the audience. I'll let you answer. You've already kind of addressed that to some extent, but let me throw out one of the other questions we got from the audience, which is from Danny Wren. And the question is specifically addressed to Dahlia. And it is, can you speak a bit about the relationship between political parties and civil society groups, the degree of elite capture of NGOs or activist groups that takes place, and whether you feel any segment of Egyptian civil society can operate functionally and independently of ties and loyalties to political elites? So these are two questions actually, and they're very important. And I'll start with the second one. NGOs have been historically extremely important as the kind of bulwarks or mechanism through which civil society is not just operating, but continuing to foster those democratic trends and democratic norms or attempting to. What we've seen in the past few years is not just an attack on, on NGOs, but the closure of many important um, NGOs. The One of the primary cases that a lot of activists have been um, brought under, including people in the in United States and throughout the, the academic West, have been the, the capture under NGO laws, that these were ways with which there was infiltration to defame the government. But today, if you look at the role of NGOs, they've been extremely limited. There have been the closure of NGOs and many civil society organizations. For example, the shutdown of the Al-Nadim Center, um, an NGO that offers support to survivors of torture and violence, the particular closure and attacks on um, feminist NGOs and those for women's rights, the criminal investigation of the case 173 against human rights defenders and NGOs, the investigation that continues since 2013, anyone who receives funding from those who wish to harm Egyptian national security under the um, Article 78 of the Penal Code, 
carries a 25-year uh, prison sentence. The freezing of many of the assets of, of NGOs continues until today. Um, this bleeds into, I think, the bigger question of, of, the, of the terrorism laws that exist in Egypt today. Terrorism laws that are defined with a very large swath of their definition, um, enacted in 2015, continuing until today, renewed earlier this year in actually an even more stringent term, and they're so broadly defined that if you look at any cases of activists today, any cases against NGOs, members of the media, there's always a terrorism charge. In, in my latest article that looks at a pretrial detention as a method of suspending activists in this kind of pretrial purgatory where you're no longer held for 45 days, but up to two years, renewable, tacking on more charges all under the terrorism clause. Anyone who's seen as speaking outside of the state narrative, threatening the state narrative, comes under this deep terrorism law. And so the, the closure of, of NGOs begs the question of why are these institutions that formally worked outside of the structure of government, but have a historically important role to play? Why have they become seen as a primary threat to which not only are their closed assets seized, but many of their leaders have been arrested under, under the terrorism law? The first uh, question was about, um, I think, if I recall correctly, political party formation. And um, I think it might be referring to what I was hoping someone would ask me about is why is it in Egypt when we think of political opposition, we think about Islamist parties. We think about primarily the Muslim Brotherhood. If you look at that law that I was mentioning in my earlier presentation, the law was designed to actually undermine, undercut, and prevent the establishment of secular and leftist parties, which were important in the 1952 revolution, in the writing of the first constitution that's no longer there. And so secular leftist parties have always been seen as a threat an underlying threat of the Egyptian regime. And so the establishment of secular and leftist parties has always been very difficult. It's difficult to establish and register a party. And the language of the political law was redundancy. They're all doing the same thing with similar political platforms. And so it's almost institutionally by design, the elimination of political pluralism within the secular and leftist camp. And so when you get to the Islamist camp, especially under Sadat, when they were actually allowed to come into the first political opening, by extension, um, their political activity over time um, since the 19, well, historically, but really since the 1970s, flourishing up in, in the 1990s, but really in the 2000s, established this as not just a movement, but a political party, even though they were still running as independents, but still with a structure and a framework allowed to work within the constraints that Mubarak had for them save the 2005 to 2007 political opening. And so post-revolution, it's natural to think that, well, when the authoritarian big man is gone, beware of the new Islamist incursion that's coming on the doorstep. And so if you recall the, 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 the public addresses that were played in Liberation Square or Tahrir Square, there was this constant from Mubarak, I know, only I can protect you from what I know is coming behind us, which is the Muslim Brotherhood, right? Again, the big man protecting from the impending threat. Now, this terrorism narrative now is, is everywhere. Rise of populism, simple solutions to very big problems. It's just the one people need to eliminate. 
We see them here in the United States. President Trump just tweeted about the big Muslim threat again last night um, in a latchdist effort to kind of swing votes in, um, in these in three primary states. But here, it's almost structurally by design. The elimination of real political pluralism and the relegating that the only viable option is an Islamist option and one version of it creates a public sentiment that political pluralism is maybe not what we need. And this has become entrenched in post-revolution Egypt, especially when political, social, and economic conditions have even deteriorated more. And so the safeguards of the transition to a consolidated democracy, intelligentsia, institutions, civil society, their erosion is almost by design the guarantee for entrenched and elongated dictatorship. And unfortunately today, it is worse in Egypt than it ever has been historically. I have a quick follow-up to that about NGOs. And either of you, perhaps both of you could respond to this, which is, are NGOs taking up the space that political parties should occupy and unwittingly acting as an impediment to the formation of effective political parties that could actually function within a liberal system? A liberal system needs political parties. And instead, you have everybody who's interested in politics, whether you call them liberals or something else, agreeing to the terms of kind of NGO formation that's set by the state. So I'd like maybe a absolutely. And, and this the kind of co-opting of NGO formation exists not just in Egypt; it exists in uh, Palestinian territories, it exists in Jordan, it exists in the Gulf countries, um, where NGOs are becoming the vehicle for change. And so the suspicion of NGOs, especially those who accept foreign training, foreign funding, um, you know, then co colors the entire swath as, as non-democratic and not in the interest of the state. But, but in the case of, of Egypt, the NGOs that continuously um, are attacked the most are the feminist NGOs, those that are trying to uphold women's rights. And so there's a, a, one of my first um, publications was on the interesting marriage between feminist NGOs and the Muslim Brotherhood um, in 1999 to push for, this is under Mubarak, the change in 2000 of the personal status laws, where for the first time in, two, in the year 2000, in this, um, the change in the personal status laws, women were allowed for the first time to apply for a no-fault divorce. Um, were allowed to apply for not just child custody, but maintenance, right? And the, and the evidence they had to produce was actually very basic elements. A, a love letter, it was enough to produce, for them to produce. And so the marriage between the feminists who were using the language of these are deeply enshrined religious laws that we have been protected from, and so they should be pushed for in governance, and the Muslim Brotherhood being the ones with which they were working with, you know, opened up that doorway of NGOs are functioning, yes, in the kind of pushing for political um, agendas that are meant to protect the people and give them that kind of liberal um, uh, values that, that were being prevented. But the interesting thing at that moment was the marriage between the feminist NGOs and the Muslim Brotherhood or members of the Muslim Brotherhood who were then independents um, begged the question of, well, the threat is even getting deeper and the threat is even getting louder. And so here, the elimination of both becomes extremely important. The only thing I'll add to that is that our col our distinguished colleague Anne Lesh had written at length about the role of NGOs in Egyptian society. And just to kind of wed this to the broader conversation about the dictatorship syndrome, regrettably, 
conspiracy is very much used in service of discrediting NGOs, particularly as Dahlia had mentioned, NGOs that accept foreign funding of any kind as being de facto enemies of the state. And in CC's Egypt, their ability to operate freely has never been more constrained for precisely that reason. Okay, I'm gonna give you another question from the audience. This one is from Nazma Sakib. And the question is, when the Muslim Brotherhood came to power, there was an argument in many Western policymaking circles that the Muslim Brotherhood is illiberal and as the West should not only care about democracy, but also care about liberal values, it should pressure the Muslim Brotherhood to liberalize more. What has happened to that argument now since um, Egypt is now being dominated by a government that is neither democratic nor liberal? I think either of you can take that. Sure. Um, so let's unpack the question first. Um, so here, the Muslim Brotherhood coming into power was um, was was through was through elections, right? Through several rounds of elections, and through a, a year previous, where people lined up at the polls um, seven times for a constitutional referendum, and so you saw that the democratic process, just as I kind of was speaking to earlier, the political pluralism, people establishing political parties, that these were deeply entrenched. Um, and so people coming into to the polls and voting for the Brotherhood is a byproduct of that democratic process. The Brotherhood coming into office, and again, we're, we're talking about 10 months, really 10 months of, of the Morsi administration. There is the kind of run up to the election that started to do the, the kind of flagging of, well, something doesn't feel right here for, for a swath of the population. Historically, the Brotherhood never contested more than 20 to 30% of seats available, right? It was never about getting power, it was about getting a voice. And they upped it to 40% and then 50%. This is running for a parliament before president and that parliament was ultimately canceled. And then running, um, contesting all hundred seats. And in my writings, I talk about that and the fear rising of what happened to trying to become a party of influence rather than a party in power. And so the logic behind that they argue is they, not enough people willing to run for office. And so to safeguard democracy, they start increasing, right? Now, technically, there's nothing wrong with that. But you can start to see how public perception responds to that as the usurpation of power. That parliament, of course, was canceled. The next election is for, um, for president. The presidential elections, there are many candidates are running. You know, we all know the history. And ultimately, in, in the second round, President Morsi is elected. But again, elected democratically. Now, what does the Brotherhood do? In that 10-month time period, we can't, it, we can't remove the endogenous factors in a country that's just gone through a revolution and the exogenous factors that needed the failure of an Islamist government or an Islamist president. And so here, the Brotherhood, yes, did they make mistakes? Absolutely, right? Not being able to win hearts and mind in the streets to a certain extent. President Morsi speaking on his own behalf while some of the biggest, I think, ideological challenges he had in the street were from members of the upper echelon of the Brotherhood, speaking in language that created a level of uncertainty in the population. The constitutional referendum, there's a huge division on how that was read, what it was intended to. So yes, absolutely, the Brotherhood, and, I, and I've written about their, their constitution and you know even questions on the role of women's rights, but all of that does not 
mean that there should not be continuation of the democratic process to vote folks out of office, right? And so we know that in constitution and the democratic consolidation, democracies are considered consolidated when there's a two turnover rule, right? Folks have been voted into office, out of office, into office, out of office, right? Voted into office and then within 10 months being removed in a military coup because of the existential fear of what are Islamists going to do to us? And the fear narrative, as Danish alluded to, was coming from many, many factors building on the, you know, the level of conspiracy theory that they're going to sell the pyramids and the Sphinx and, um, you know, close cinemas. And in, in my writing on their behavior, for example, in parliament pre-revolution, they never took up these issues. It was bread and butter issues. So what is the role of, you know, the, the, the adherence to real structural liberalism of using institutions of governance to protect civil society and this really deep movements, both in, in internally um, and externally, to ensure the failure of this government to almost welcome their removal, ultimately leading to the enshrining of what we have today, which is a military dictatorship. Danish, I know you have more to say on this. I see you nodding. Uh, no, I think that was actually quite robust. So I'm kind of at loss for words. Okay, but uh, I actually want to come back to the last thing that Dahlia just said, which was a question that we got from Eugene Rogan, of all people. And I confess it was a question that had occurred to me as well. So I'll more or less paraphrase Eugene's question, which is, shouldn't we be talking more about the military? I mean, his question was in the form of what if Alaswani and focusing on the figure of the dictators overlooking the underlying problem of the deep state in San Diego, particularly in the military, and it occurs to me that perhaps I'll talk of a liberal order in a state with a military this powerful, which has been sustained by its foreign relations, particularly with the United States, and through a series of kind of emergencies brought about by wars that entrench military power more over the decades. Why aren't we talking about the military? Why, why are we talking about the failure of a liberal order in a state that is in fact dominated by the military? Okay, to that end, I think that Dr. Aswani at least alludes to the role of the military when he talks about his childhood memories in the context of the 1967 war. He was uh, having conversations with an Italian neighbor of his who, for whom he was translating the media correspondences. And then that Italian neighbor, uh, after not, uh, the latest correspondence, suggested that Egypt had downed some 20 Israeli planes or something like that. And the Italian neighbor said, my boy, your government is lying to you. It's not, I lived through the, the, um, the Second World War. It's not possible for that many planes to be down in a day. So I think he does allude to the power and the strength of the military in falsifying narratives. This goes into his broader conversations about conspiracy theory. So the, the, the deep state is on his mind. But once again, I don't think that it's really he doesn't view the deep state of the military as the penultimate threat. He views Islamists excessively take up that role. And I think that's really what leads the good doctor to kind of shift gears in his attention and focus. 
Yeah, that's a wonderful question. Um, when we look at the uh, role of military today, we used to say that the Egyptian military controls 20% of the economy. Today, it's, it's upwards of 80% of the economy. Um, if we look at the role of military in politics, the military is politics today. There's really no getting around the military. I, I remember just as the revolution and, you know, the Friday where President, um, President Mubarak stepped down and there was an announcement that the it's over and everyone is celebrating. And I remember, you know, looking around saying, okay, well, this was a soft coup. Remember the military stepped aside and let this happen, right? There were soldiers and tanks in the streets and it was, you know, one hand. And, um, and I remember saying, this is a soft coup because you know, in politics, there are winners and losers. And in order for the people to win, we had to recognize that, well, the military had to let go of a level of, of constraint and control on society, the economy and politics. Now, the military started to see Mubarak during the revolution and pre-revolution as a threat because they were about to go into that kind of hereditary rule of his son. And so they stepped by and in some of their own kind of public statements that were made of, you know, telling young people, you didn't do this revolution. We actually let it happen because we needed the removal of Mubarak. Very quickly thereafter, in, in 2013, it became very apparent that President Morsi was a threat to the military and needed to be removed. And unfortunately today, the military of today is very different than the military of Mubarak. President Sisi has purged the top three layers of the military out of fear of his own, um, his own future. And so um, there is going to a coming moment, I believe, where he will be a threat to the power of the military because of really poor economic and political positions. Today, Egypt is st strategically weak, one of the weakest countries in the Middle East on several fronts of its border. However, he has very efficiently purged the military for any alternate voices. The presidential election that occurred a little over a year ago or a year and a half ago, much of the viable candidates were ex-military officers. And so that signaled that there's an internal rift. And so you're absolutely right. We can't be talking about illiberalism and, and in, in Egyptian society without talking about the deep entrenchment of the military in politics and the economy and in civil society. And it stems from the idea that in every family is a military officer. These are sons of the nation. They have our best interest. And it begs, goes back to that question of complicity of not being able to see the military as a threat to the political order but absolutely the military in power is a threat to liberal ideals. I could bring out one more question from an audience member, but actually I wanted to ask Osama if perhaps he has, because you didn't really get a chance to ask a question. Do you have a question, Osama? I, I would feel guilty taking the opportunity away from some excellent questions that have come through the audience. So, you know. Right. Uh, okay, so we have a question from Monica Marks, who is one of our own graduates with the DPhil. And her question is to what extent do you feel that fears regarding what the Muslim Brotherhood would do to women's rights and the potential for Sisi to protect women and feminists against the specter of Muslim Brotherhood repression proved to be a pivotal factor in consolidating so-called liberal support for Sisi's rule in Egypt? It wasn't addressed to anybody in particular, so either one of you or both of you could respond. I can take this, although I feel I've been talking too much. Dennis, if you want to jump in, feel free to go ahead. Um, 
you know, that was one of the narratives that was promoted, right? If, if uh, the Morsi administration continues, you know, women will be out moving outside of the, um, of the public sphere, you'll be forced to cover. And, and again, this, this hysteria is, is covered in our, in our book under um, Mohammed al-Masri's chapter. And I, I remember having conversations with folks and saying, you know, what exactly is it that you're afraid of? Like, what is this deep fear? And it's like, that I won't be able to go to a resort and wear a bathing suit. And I said, what indicators do you have that this will be eliminated under, um, under this presidency? And they're not there, they're absent. The conversation on um, that used to occur in, in the year, I think it was 1995 of, should Egypt be part of the Miss World pageant, right? Um, these kind of symbolic curtailing of, of women's visibility in, in the public were not happening in the 2000s. And there weren't conversations on this. In terms of the, of the constitution written under, or beginning to write, be written under President Morsi's administration, the constitution was very similar to the constitution before it. One of the primary differences, it actually removed Sharia as the law of the land, right? And so if you think about the Mubarak constitution included the language of Sharia as the law of the land. It was under the Mubarak constitution that personal status laws limited women's rights, women's um, inheritance, child custody laws. And so here you had a constitution that was going to be more progressive in that regard, but in my opinion, not progressive enough. But the current constitution is much worse. And so the idea that Islamists are out to get women's rights and women's representation and women's visibility doesn't technically have evidence when it comes to the last at least 15 years of Muslim Brotherhood um, attempt, attempted legislation and, and parliament. But the narrative of hysteria around what they would do to society is still very deep, right? Again, from selling the pyramids to um, the wife of President Morsi, a woman who uh, not just veiled, but wore a, a khimar, a longer veil, you know, how could she be the first lady of our country? It's so regressive, right? That kind of symbolic language still exists in Egypt. And there, there again, are very long institutional reasons and historical reasons why controlling the body politic of politics on the bodies of women continues. The authoritarian nature of this is very gendered. Um, Mubarak would not have gone into the streets and said, those women in Tahrir Square, those are the ones fighting for your rights. Those are the daughters of the nations, the ones sleeping in the streets. We have to remember there were virginity tests on these protesters, right? Um, some of the first images we saw of protests were women coming face to face with the security apparatus and what happened to them. They were stripped of their clothing, right? It's a very gendered nature to the, to the, revolu to the state's response to the revolution. And so all of this has to be taken together and we can't take one aspect of the hysteria on what um, these so-called Islamists would do to the state without looking at Egypt's very long history of authoritarianism being instituted and enshrined on the bodies of women. Thank you very much, Dahlia. And uh, I'm sorry to say that we've really run out of time at this point. And I, I feel that, Danish, you've not had the opportunity to say very much. So as the chair, I would like to give you maybe a minute if you'd like to say anything. But otherwise, I'm at this point going to wrap up. So would you like to add anything or a, a reflection, perhaps? Concluding uh, reflection? I don't really have any specific concluding remarks as such. I mean, I think Dahlia and I are really speaking in one voice here. And Right. Um, I, I, I don't really feel like there's anything more that I need to add at this point. 
that's perfectly okay. And of course, in some respects, you did speak in one voice because you co-edited a work and that's the work we're talking about in some respects. So I'd like to thank everyone who's attended. I do apologize that we didn't get to all the questions, but these are short and sweet sessions, hopefully. And I'd like to thank Walter for really managing the questions very well and giving plenty of opportunity to those who had asked questions. But finally, I'd really like to thank both Dahlia and Danish for really giving us some food for thought with respect to thinking about the place of liberalism in Egypt and the way in which an ideology that ostensibly is about promoting democracy is very often used to subvert democracy, unfortunately, in these very unusual contexts. And to echo Walter's remarks, in a sense, it's not a liberal liberalism, but it's a kind of failed liberalism. But we, we can also sort of reflect on critiques of liberalism that you treat in your introduction to the work that show that liberalism is such a, a vast tradition and, and quite a capacious tradition that it has traditions of colonialism and recognizing that La Mission Civilisatrice is about, is about the liberal tradition as well. So it's a, it's a complex history. And I hope that those of you who are attending and you know, those, I certainly learnt more about uh, this tradition as it applies to the Egyptian context. And with that, I'd like to thank you all again. If I could make one, one comment, I just I wanted to say I very much hope that Dr. Aswani himself either is in attendance or that he ultimately does have the opportunity to uh, watch this presentation and would be extremely honoured to hear his thoughts. I will try to convey that to uh, to Dr. Aswani, who I do not know personally, but I will do what I can to do that. Thank you again. And well, we at the Middle East Centre look forward to welcoming you again next week to another session. It's actually one that I will again be running. So literally, I will be uh, looking forward to welcoming you on the Gulf specifically. And we're having an amazing scholar and an amazing journalist, the uh, Middle East Bureau Chief of the New York Times, Ben Hubbard alongside Madawi al-Rashid, who is an extremely prolific author on Saudi Arabia and the Middle East more generally. So please do join us next week. And until then, have a good weekend. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you all. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you.